ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and ABC Listen. Most European countries pride themselves on having laws and treaties to promote human rights. But the US Commission on International Religious Freedom, which is an official government body, has slammed several countries. It says they infringe the religious liberty of minorities. Now, in its latest report, it's especially critical of the way France treats some Muslims. Professor Massimo Intravignier is a former official of the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe. He now heads the Centre for the Study of New Religions in Turin. Well, I believe there are two main uh, concerns. The first is uh, France passed the law on uh, separatism. Separatism in English, yes. Yeah, separatism. uh, The word separatism was taken away from the title after uh, all religions protested, from the Catholic Church to the Protestant to the Jews to the Muslims. But in fact, uh, the substance remains. And the spirit of the law is that France cannot tolerate religions uh, organizing separate communities with their uh, schools, their cultural institutions, their ways of dressing, values different from the values of the Republic. If you look at the very long discussions about this law, some provisions had to be eliminated because the Council of State said they were against the Constitution, but others remained you will see that even if the law was received negatively by the Catholics and Protestants and Jews as well, it was born uh, as a law against self-organization as a separate community of the Muslims. And then certain politicians who are in the business of fighting cults also added the, some provisions targeting the, the so-called cults. Yes, but Professor, wasn't this law in response to the fact that France has suffered many terrorist incidents? Um, we've had the sentencing of those responsible for the dreadful terrorist attack in 2015. The French would say, look, these laws against separatism are designed for national security, wouldn't they? These laws may actually damage national security. And uh, I will give the comparative uh, example of my country, Italy. I've been a member of the Governmental Commission on Italian Islam. Italy had a season of political Palestinian attacks 30 years ago, but these were secular Muslims, so to speak. Italy has had practically zero terrorist attacks, unlike France or Belgium. Of course, sociologists like me have tried to answer the question why this happens. Our government can be proud that we have a good police, but that's not the only reason. I believe the reason is that here, the Muslims, which are 1.5 million, do not feel harassed. They can wear a veil, 
they cannot be separatist, uh, so to speak. So if you create a pressure and they feel uh, discriminated or repressed just because uh, they are Muslim, the risk is that you create a situation where for uh, terrorist organizations it doesn't become more difficult, but mm. it becomes actually easier to recruit uh, terrorists. Professor, we can understand why there's concern about laws that restrict a person's ability to wear a yarmulke or a headscarf or a cross around uh, his or her neck. We can understand that. But why is there concern about laws against animal ritual slaughter? Because we're talking here about animal cruelty in some respects. What's the problem with laws that prevent ritual slaughter or at least regulate ritual slaughter? In this case, uh, interestingly, the problem is not so much France. The problem is more the Nordic countries, which have a very strong animal rights movement. The protests uh, which reached USCRF were only occasionally or very rarely filed by Muslims. The protests in these cases were filed by Jews because the ritual slaughter, as the report says, is a deeply held religious doctrine for the Jews. And so they've been fighting this in the United States and in many other countries, and they have implemented some measures aimed at reducing suffering of the animals. But basically the Jewish position is that prescription about the ritual slaughter comes from God and that humans are not free to alter or change the prescription of God. Doesn't the United Nations Covenant on Civil and Political Rights say there can be certain limitations on religious liberty if it is in the interests of the broader community? It says so, but also it uh, says in the general comments to Article 18, uh, which were elaborated by the Human Rights Commission not the Human Rights Council, that one should be very careful that this restriction does not have a discriminatory effect. And the general comments on Article 18 particularly address the question of groups stigmatized as cults or in French sect, because one should be very careful that the same limitations in the interest of uh, national security or common good. The state should not discriminate between different religions, say we like this religion or we dislike this other one, so we are more strict uh, in evaluating, uh, say, how the Jehovah's Witnesses Mm. manage their money with respect to how the Catholic Church manages its money. Right. Uh, What about hate speech laws? There is a very subtle line between punishing hate speech, which is, of course, right, and limiting freedom of speech. And courts of law sometimes have very thorny cases. I remember when I was in the OSCE, I had to deal with a British case where a preacher was fined for simply reading in open space 
passages of the Bible where Paul the Apostle uh, is uh, quite abrasive in his indictment of uh, homosexuals. Mm. Is this hate speech or is this just reading the Bible? Can we really ask people to change the text of the Bible or the Quran for that matter to put it in accordance with modern sensitivities? Professor Massimo Intravigne of the Turin-based Centre for the Study of New Religions. And this is the Religion and Ethics Report, where you're hearing about the links between religion and the news that's shaping the world. Human trafficking ensnares about 28 million people, according to the International Labour Organisation. Millions of victims are children who suffer sexual exploitation. So when a very popular movie comes along to raise awareness of this crisis, you would presumably welcome it. At the end of July, Sound of Freedom had grossed more than $100 million at the US box office, but it's very controversial. Kristen Abrams runs the anti-trafficking program for the McCain Institute in Washington. She worries about the impact this film could have on efforts to protect children from exploitation. It can happen in the ways that have been portrayed by pop culture. We know that some children are kidnapped and find themselves in human trafficking situations, and we need to be aware of that. What we know, though, is that the overwhelming majority of children know their trafficker, and they find themselves in that situation because of other dynamics, whether they were in the child welfare system or experiencing homelessness, or their parents were in dire economic circumstances and were somewhat involved in the situation that ended up their children being involved in trafficking. So I I think it can happen in a number of ways. Something else I also want to point out is it's happening online. And it's not just girls. Yet another dark side to the digital world So we do have a genuine problem of a particularly depraved type, and then along comes a movie like The Sound of Freedom. It is, according to its publicity, based on a true story. It shines the light, apparently, on child trafficking. What's the problem with this film? It's doing very well at the box office. I think there are a couple of things. First is that it is based on a true story, but it is very loosely based. Even the individual who's at the center of the movie would tell you that a very significant portion of that movie is not true. The second half of the movie is not true. There are portions that glorify this extrajudicial killings, that glorify raids where one individual goes in to try and rescue an individual. In this case, it's a child from trafficking. None of that's true. The other parts that are problematic is that it emphasizes that child trafficking is a result of kidnapping. And in the U.S., we know that it's less than 10% of victims don't know their trafficker. The vast majority of victims know their trafficker. 
There are networks, though, aren't there, Kristen, that will involve people unknown to the victim. I was looking at uh, a United Nations uh, Office of uh, Crime and Drugs, and they do talk about these networks that operate principally in Eastern Europe. So there are networks. I certainly would not disagree with you that there are networks and there's organized crime involved in human trafficking all over the world. So in your experience, in your research, what would be, if it's at all possible, a typical scenario in which a child is trafficked? We know who is most vulnerable. And I mentioned that children who have run away from home find themselves in abuses of sexual exploitation. We know that children in our child welfare system find themselves in situations that are akin to child trafficking or are child trafficking. I think we also know there are a lot of kids, and the ILO has done some really great work on this, in addition to UNODC that you mentioned, looking at the huge number of kids who find themselves in child labor situations. And a lot of that comes down to an economic need uh, for the families. You mentioned, Kristen, the particularly pernicious use of online trafficking and online exploitation. I mean, what's the scenario there? You have a situation of a uh, young boy who is enjoying online gaming, may develop a friendship with someone who he believes to be another boy. That person may not be a boy. It's really easy to hide your identity, your true identity online. Over time, that boy may be feeling lonely, may be looking for friendship and companionship. And then we see grooming happening online, which then can lead to sextortion. And in some cases, can escalate to online exploitation and even in some cases into trafficking in the real world. And I think the data that we have from national and international law enforcement would underscore that online exploitation is a problem. Of course, we see this happening with young girls as well that really are developing relationships with people online who are not who they say they are. There's sometimes little supervision or these kind of communications can be hidden from adults that may be concerned. And so some of the work that we've done at the McCain Institute has really been to educate and empower parents and caregivers to help their children understand how to safely navigate the digital world. So if the kind of uh, dramatic scenario that we see in this film, Sound of Freedom, in which an heroic individual goes in and, as you say, all guns blazing, takes back the exploited child, if that is, A, unrealistic and, B, it's not the preferred response, what is the best method for rescuing, because that's what has to happen, the children who are trapped in this? First, we have to focus on prevention. We have to be looking at the root causes. What caused the children to end up in these situations? So, so much of the emphasis has been on this rescue, how do we get victims out, which is very important. And I will get to your specific question. But I think we have to be investing more time and more resources into prevention. When it comes to how do we get individuals, whether they're children or adults, out of this situation, 
we have to be working with our local, national, and international law enforcement agencies to understand how to safely go into what is largely a dangerous situation to extract an individual. And then really importantly, and this is not featured in the movie, provide those aftercare services. So what happens after an individual leaves a trafficking situation? There's been a lot of criticism of organizations who have used these snatch and grab or rescue and raid approaches because they haven't always been A, working with law enforcement, and B, don't have a plan of how you're going to provide services to the victim after they are pulled away from or in an adult situation, sometimes leave the trafficking situation of their own free will. Just finally, Kristen, I haven't seen the film, but I know that there is a problem associated with uh, trying to deal in a realistic way with the very tragic situation of child trafficking, and it involves these very outlandish conspiracy theories that seem to surround this crisis. You know, how does this complicate your work, some of the, the extraordinary conspiracy theories? You may have seen some of the writing that I've done on this topic, and I have been very intentional to steer clear of mentioning, involving the QAnon conspiracy theories that have become part of this conversation because, and I want to be fair to this film, it's not part of this film. It's adjacent because uh, one of the main actors has endorsed some of these conspiracy theories, but it's really not part of the film. And so I'm trying to keep the focus and the conversation really on the merits of the film itself and on what those preferred responses are. The conspiracy theories will always be there and they are baseless and they are really unhelpful in that they distract practitioners and people who are trying to provide preventative or response services. And they create anxiety on the part of the public that a threat may exist, whether it's in an uh, online shopping experience. And we then fail to see where there may be real or actual threats for the, the children in our lives or the, the individuals in our lives. Thank you very much for being with us on the Religion and Ethics Report, Kristen. Great to be with you. Kristen Abrams of the McCain Institute in Washington, D.C. In a country as divided as the U.S., one of the more heartening stories of unity is the growth of marriage across religious and racial lines. Around four in ten Americans are in religiously diverse partnerships, and one of them is the leading writer and commentator, Naomi Schaefer-Riley. She and her husband have been together almost 20 years. They've got three kids, a great marriage. But in a recent book, she says there are pitfalls with interfaith romance. Naomi was in Australia recently with the Centre for Independent Studies. I asked how she'd made it work. 
<laughs> yes, a little bit of self-reflection there. I think what I would like to say about intermarriage and what the, the book that I wrote a number of years ago said is that on the one hand, the rise of interfaith marriage in America, I think, is a positive development in some ways in that it demonstrates a very high level of tolerance and assimilation. The idea is that these different religious groups in America, Jews and Muslims and Christians, can all get along well enough to get married to each other is really something that is unseen in human history before that. And I don't want to sort of minimize what that means. But at the same time, I think we also need to look at it on the level of individual relationships and what it means that so many people are marrying outside of their faith. And that number has, you know, skyrocketed since the 1960s. The book did a survey and looked at questions of not only people marrying of different faiths, but people marrying faith, no faith, which is what the kind of marriage that I'm in. I'm Jewish. My husband professes no religion. We're raising our kids Jewish. But what happens is that there are lower levels of marital satisfaction among people who are in interfaith marriages. And I tried to really kind of figure out what was behind that. You know, a lot of people assume that if we can agree on the big things, the principles, that everything's fine. But marriage is, of course, you know, a series of day-to-day interactions and conflicts and conversations. And the things that people are most likely to fight about in marriages are how you spend your time, how you spend your money, and how you're raising your kids. And religion affects all of those. Um, So that's why I sort of, uh, I'm a little bit more wary about it than maybe people might expect. How did you make it work? Because I think Jason is now an agnostic. I think he grew up Baptist and became a Jehovah's Witness at one point, didn't he? How have you made that relationship? work, though. By the time I met Jason, he was not somebody who professed any faith at all. I probably would not have married someone who professed another faith because I knew that I wanted to raise my children Jewish. And so I recount this funny story in my book of how I told him on our first date that I was planning to raise my children Jewish. So I do think these are conversations that people need to have very early on in relationships. And what happens is they actually tend to put them off for a very long time. When you're in your 20s and maybe early 30s are kind of your typically your most secular point in your life. You're not necessarily going to church or synagogue relatively regularly. But once you get married and sort of start in all these life cycle events of having children, for instance, or maybe you have a parent die or something, you kind of want to return in some ways to your religious roots. But by that point, you've sort of made this connection with another person and a lot of difficult compromises have to be made. Mm The other aspect of a multi-faith society, and a very good aspect of it, I would have thought, is that you also have a multi-ethnic society. And I think there's something rather beautiful about falling in love across what was once a barrier. That's your story. Your husband, to whom we've referred, Jason Riley, is of African-American background, one of America's most respected columnists. I hope this is still commonplace. It's not rare, and it's certainly a growing phenomenon across all races, I think. I think what's actually most interesting now is that the one kind of intermarriage that is not growing and indeed shrinking is interpolitical party marriage. (laughs) Um, And I, I think that that tells you a lot about our society. I think that you know, people are wear their politics on their sleeves very clearly now. And so you go out in your first date or your second date, and you'll immediately know someone's views on abortion or gun control or any number of other issues, who 
they voted for in the last election, what they think of Donald Trump. And you won't go out with them again, honestly, in a lot of cases, I think, if they disagree because of the sort of state of our political dialogue right now. Whereas things like religion are actually sort of buried much more. And you won't bring those up until your third date or you're six months into your relationship or something like that. But yes, interpolitical party marriage is, is down. The reason I raised the question as to whether, you know, intercultural or interracial marriage was rare is I'm wondering whether this march of identity politics, which many people have identified as quite corrosive, has in fact affected the possibility of those kind of intercultural partnerships. I think that's probably going to happen if we continue down this path. Where you see it most in the sort of family realm is in people's attitude toward adoption. There's actually a lot of backlash right now in America against transracial adoption, which I think is really unfortunate. You know, we had for a long time, again, a kind of level of tolerance known nowhere else in history that you would be willing to and happy to welcome in a child who looked nothing like you really into your home. 90-something percent of Americans, you know, approved of transracial adoption. Now, especially sort of the class of social workers in our country, but the elites think these barriers are so large that you couldn't possibly understand what it is like to be this other person. And I think that could eventually, if we continue down this path, have an impact on cross-racial relationships. If you convince people that somebody of another race is so different from you that you could never possibly understand that person person that will really discourage you from meriting them. Yeah. I've been reading a fair bit of your work, for example, on child welfare and uh, something that you're very passionate about and this question of interracial adoption. I think you do say that all things being equal, children being adopted by families of the same race probably works out in the sense that there's fewer questions. It's more simple. It is more simple. It's such a hypothetical because in America, we live in a country where so many more of the children who need a stable, loving, adoptive families are African-American. And we don't have a huge population of African-American parents willing to take them in. And so, in fact, the question we're actually faced with is, would you rather this child be adopted by white family? Would you rather have them spend their life in foster care? And I think that we should all know the answer to that question. Yeah. Back in 2015, you wrote a fascinating book. It's called Got Religion, How Churches, Mosques and Synagogues Can Bring Young People Back. What were you seeing around you that prompted the idea for that book? In the U.S., we've seen a huge decline in the number of younger people going to church, professing religion, but attending church or other religious institutions on a regular basis. Their connection had really faded. And I think, by the way, I trace a lot of that to the rising age of marriage. When you sort of spend this long period of time as a single person, maybe never even getting married at all, never coming back to that sort of family element in church, you're just going to fall away. I just sort of started, you know, hearing about certain institutions that seem to be having more of a following among young people. And it wasn't necessarily what you expected. A lot of it, you know, I think people expected, oh, that these uh, institutions must be very good on social media, you know, grabbing people from the internet or things like that. And it wasn't that at all. I mean, I think some of the most interesting ones were sort of a return to a very local model of church, you know, sort of thinking it about it more like an actual parish where if you're in this square mile, we would like you. If you're outside of the square mile, you should go to the next one over 
over. Everybody wants the walkable neighborhood now. Well, the walkable church sort of was part of that too. Look, just finally, in the context, for example, of a coming election campaign in the United States, is it a concern for you that religion has become quite politicised in the United States by both sides? But there does seem to be a particular problem for young people in America not wanting to identify, for example, with many white Protestant churches because they do think it's an outgrowth of a political party. Is this something that you've seen? Absolutely. And I think it's a concern on two fronts. The first way it concerns me is that I'm concerned when people make politics their religion, because that's what happens. When a lot of people leave churches, they still need religion or they feel they need religion in their lives. And so then they turn to politics as sort of this be all end all. Politics is going to provide the ultimate truths and the purpose for my life. That's a very dangerous thing. And it probably has led to some of the polarization that you're seeing now. But yes, the other thing is when, you know, everybody just wants to talk about politics from the pews, I think a lot of young people and people, you know, American people in general are sort of turned off a little bit like by that and feel like, oh, I'd just rather stay away. If I wanted that, I could stay at home and watch Watch cable news. Spare us from that ex- <laughs> Spare us from that existence, Naomi. <laughs> 24 hours of cable news, 24-7. I don't think so. Look, it has been terrific to speak with you. Naomi Schaefer-Riley, she's one of America's preeminent political commentators. She's with the American Enterprise Institute. She's written extensively on issues of faith and family. Thank you for being with us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Thank you so much for having me. And there's a link to Naomi's articles and books at our website. That's the show. You can find us at ABC Listen. Thanks to Anita Barrow and Anne-Marie de Betancourt. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.